Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as sinners, mindful of the many ways that we have fallen short of your perfect righteousness. God, if we're honest, we can think even in the past few hours of ways that we have sinned against you. Perhaps in our preparing to come to church this morning, there was conflict and strife in our home. Perhaps there are other thoughts on our hearts and minds as we have been distracted from your word and worship of you. God, no matter what the sin, we confess to you again, claiming the forgiveness that has been offered in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And God, we rejoice this morning that as we are resting in this forgiveness that we have been made right with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, this morning, we pray that you would help us understand what it is to rest in your forgiveness and justification. And we also ask that you would help us to be bold in our witness of this forgiveness and justification. In fact, God, we pray this morning that you would make us a people who proclaim your forgiveness to all people. God, we ask that you would help us in this endeavor because we admit that we are at times weak in this area. We're weak of mind because we wrestle with what questions or doubts or objections others may raise if we share the gospel. God, we're also weak of heart because we're scared to death of what other people th may think about us. And God, we're also weak of hands and feet because we're reluctant to go. So God, this morning, I pray that in our passage, you would compel us to take heart and to be strong rather than weak, but not strong in our own might, but strong in the gospel. So help us to be strong in mind, convinced in our minds that the gospel is your word to people, that you have indeed acted to save sinners by your incredible grace, and give us a boldness that comes with that understanding. And then God, I pray that you would make us strong of heart, that we would not fear man, but that we would fear the Lord, and we would boldly declare this glorious gospel to whomever you allow us to share it. And then, God, I pray that you would make us strong of hand and strong of feet, that we would be quick to take action according to the gospel, that we would move into the situations and into the relationships where you want us to work faithfully and fruitly for the proclamation of your name. And, God, we pray all of this because we confess again we're unable to do the task on our own, but we are enabled to do it through the grace and power of your Holy Spirit. And it's according to him we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is my privilege to speak to you this morning. And my name is Nathan, and I'm the pastor of Grace Church, if you haven't gathered that over the past several weeks. But we've had a great series of meetings as we've been exploring the possibility of whether or not God wants our churches to merge to form one new church. But really, as you think about that, you shouldn't be thinking of identities and brands, as it were, for local churches. Instead, we ought to be thinking of the timeless one church that Christ has raised up around his gospel. And that church takes on many local configurations and it changes over time. But the one constant is Jesus. And the author of Hebrews said it this way, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
our life circumstances are certainly not as constant as Jesus. And we sometimes misplace our hope in those details of our lives that are fleeting rather than in the thing, the one person that should be permanent, and that is Christ himself. So if we've, as we have entered into this conversation, we've come to it with open hands saying, God, what would you have us do? Where would you have us go and whom would you have us reach? And do you want us to do that together? So we've been looking in the book of Acts as we've considered some of the aspects of being faithful to the gospel. And Jerry has led us through several passages in the book of Acts to help us see the importance of the gospel and even the persecution and the suffering and the difficulty that come in proclaiming it. And this morning, I want to turn your attention to Acts 13, where the early church decides to take the gospel from not only Jerusalem and then Antioch of Syria, but to take the gospel everywhere. And in Acts chapter 13, just to build the context before we get to verse number 38, you have here the early church at Antioch of Syria commissioning Paul and Barnabas as their missionaries. And it's fascinating in these opening verses, the first five verses of chapter 13, that you have a cohort of believers leading this church that are a mixed multitude according to the old standards of the law for Israel. It's a mixed multitude because we have Jewish and Gentile men who've been set apart by the gospel of Christ to lead his church, and now they're going to commission Paul and Barnabas and send them out across the Roman Empire in order to reach more people with the gospel. Well, as they do that, Paul and Barnabas are acutely aware that their mission has been defined by Jesus and their mission is telling other people about Jesus. There was no mistake about that. They were not representatives of either Jerusalem church or Antioch church and trying to put a flag down and say, look, we're going out to plant churches under the Antioch of Syria brand. And we're going to start a movement or network of churches called the Antioch Churches. No, Paul and Barnabas have been commissioned by the church at Antioch to tell of Jesus. And Jesus would go, if you go through the book of Acts, to over 40 cities that are recorded in this book. And it shows that the gospel conquers all cultures and extends to all people. And the brand is none other than Jesus. The brand is not a particular church or a particular group of churches, but the brand is those who follow Jesus Christ and gather as his church in their local area. So as Paul and Barnabas are sent out and they're on this commission, they immediately travel south to Cyprus. And as they go, they take the gospel with them, proclaiming it city to city, place to place, and they continue to meet people that God calls to himself to believe this gospel. And the first section of Acts 13 records some of those who respond to the gospel, including another Gentile. When you have Sergius Paulus, who is a leader of the proconsul, this man is trying to be tricked and deceived by a Jewish false prophet. And yet the gospel overcame this magician, this sorcerer bar Jesus, and instead showed Sergius Paulus the real Christ, and he believed. Well, as Paul and Barnabas continued to travel, they declared the glories of the gospel 
depending on their audience in great detail. And as they come to Antioch at Pisidian, which is not the same Antioch of Syria from which they were commissioned, they immediately go to the synagogue. And upon arriving at this synagogue, verse 15 says, the leaders there invited them to share. Now you might imagine a gathering of God's people. They're there for worship in the temple. And the leaders recognize Paul or Saul, because in this chapter, his name switches from Saul to Paul. But they call upon him, and Barnabas, who was a well-respected brother, and they asked them to teach the people in the synagogue. And what they taught was consistent with what the synagogue believed, but they made a straight line from the old covenant and the law to Jesus. And Paul gives his first sermon, or at least the first that's recorded for us in the book of Acts, And like many American sermons, there are three points to it. But this morning, I'm not going to preach Paul's three points, but if you look at verse number 16, his first point begins there, where he says, he motions with his hands and he said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And then his second point comes up in verse 26 when he says, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. It is for us that this message of salvation has been sent. And then his third point, where he brings it all together, is where we're starting this morning. And that is in verse number 38. He says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In the first two points of his sermon, Paul had explained who Jesus was and how he was the culmination of all the things that the Old Testament pointed to from the time of the Exodus all the way through King David, it was all pointing to Messiah. Now, this was a message that was not readily welcome in the synagogue because the synagogue was still focused on the Old Testament and the Mosaic Code. But Paul was drawing a straight line to help them see that this Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And that in fact, he had done all that they were looking forward to and it had been accomplished on his cross. In fact, look back a few verses there at verse number 27. He says, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people." We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. I told you I wasn't going to preach his whole sermon, but the point there is that Paul said the people in that synagogue should be worshiping Jesus. And in his third point, which is going to be my first point, he shows that Christians must proclaim the good news. So this is my first major point this morning, that Christians must proclaim the good news. When he says, my friends, I want you to know, he is writing to them so that they could have an understanding of the gospel, not as a theory 
or a system of theology, but so they could understand the gospel for their own lives and its implications in their hearts and in their minds. This knowledge was to be a knowledge that Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness of sins. This is what Paul was proclaiming to them. Paul was not adding a new system of laws or adding a higher requirement or somehow adding another form of legalism. Instead, he was bringing the person who fulfilled all of those righteous requirements, and that was none other than Jesus. So he says, I want you to know this because this is why Barnabas and I are traveling around, sharing with whomever will listen about the gospel of Jesus. Paul declared the good news of forgiveness of our sins through Christ, and it's Jesus' substitutionary death that satisfied the justice of God and brought reconciliation between the righteous God and guilty sinners. And this forgiveness can only come through faith in Jesus, and it also includes justification, he'll say in verse number 39. But what is forgiveness? We struggle with this idea of forgiveness even in our non-Christian culture. We live in an era when people can proclaim all kinds of messages. And social media seems to have given a megaphone to this proclaiming of divergent messages. And isn't it interesting that in the past five years or so, the resounding theme of most of those messages is one of judgment and one of canceling and dividing and alienating. The world is quick to separate and call out according to their own righteousness who is on the right side of an issue and who is on the wrong side of the issue. And they are extremely slow to offer any kind of forgiveness. In fact, people who have been canceled sometimes wonder, how did I end up on the wrong side? And what can I do to get back on the right side? And there's no solution offered because once you've been canceled, you are just sent out to silently live the rest of your life. Your megaphone has been taken away. But Paul says in all the things that he could proclaim and that Barnabas could proclaim, it was not a message of canceling or judgment. It was instead a message of forgiveness, one of restoration, that people could be made right with God. If you have your worship guide, I put in there some questions on the inside of the front page. And the first one is, what is forgiveness? And I'm borrowing here from Chris Bronze, who wrote an incredibly helpful book entitled Unpacking Forgiveness. And I'm giving you the author's name and title because I would commend you to read this book, Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze. But he defines forgiveness this way. He says, forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. Braun spends an entire book unpacking that definition, and I'm not gonna do that in this sermon. But the thing that I want you to focus on is that this is a commitment to us who are sinners by God through Jesus to make us right, to pardon us, and to forgive us of our sins. And this is an incredible gift that we have in Jesus. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 
In other words, all the wrong things that we have done, all the wrong things that we're doing, and all the wrong things we could ever do, if we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, they have been made right. They have been dealt with. And we are no longer canceled before our Father God, but we are brought into a right relationship with him. So this leads to the second question that I put in your worship guide, and that is why we proclaim forgiveness, or why do we proclaim forgiveness? And that is from another author who is actually in Chris Braun's book. So there's another shameless plug for Braun. I don't know him. He's, I'm not getting royalties or commissions from him. But this is a helpful definition as well. He says, forgiveness takes the central place in Christian proclamation as the means whereby the relationship between God and humanity is restored. It stands as the action of God in the face of sinful behavior of man and is based on Christ. So why do we proclaim forgiveness? Because this is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We share the forgiveness that we have in Christ because we desperately need forgiveness. And the people that God has called us to share the gospel with desperately need forgiveness as well. All people struggle with guilt and shame for sin. And even though our culture tries to suppress guilt and hide shame, they're still there always lurking below the surface. This guilt and shame, if it's not dealt with in our own hearts, will lead to more division and more difficulty in our relationships. Because rather than taking on our own guilt, we inevitably push it on to someone else and say, well, it's not my fault that I did that. I mean, if I hadn't have known you or been working with you or if you hadn't have been in my family, and we immediately shift blame just as Adam and Eve were quick to shift blame in the Garden of Eden. And we also wrestle with enormous shame over our sin, knowing that what we've done is somehow wrong, even if we're not a Christian. Even those who have not read the Bible recognize that there are certain sins that are simply beyond the pale. And that shame has to be dealt with. Our current culture tries to deal with the shame by normalizing sin and saying, well, those things that the Christians once called wrong are now right. And those things that were once shameful are something that we boast about. And I could give you a grocery list of things, but just in the past 50 or 60 years, our culture seems to have done a complete somersault on morality. And that somersault on morality is their attempt to deal with shame. But the only way to resolve guilt and shame is through the forgiveness that Paul proclaimed in Antioch of Pisidon. And that he proclaimed throughout the first century as he traveled through the Roman Empire from city to city, declaring how people could be made right with God. That's why he said, this is what we proclaim to you. This good news involves forgiveness. He also says it involves justification. Look at verse number 39. He says, through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. This justification is one of the most important doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, and it refers to our legal standing before God. In fact, we could define it this way. Justification is the divine act of a sovereign God who declares gospel-believing sinners righteous in Jesus Christ. It is a divine act of a sovereign God 
He is the only one who can say, you are right, you are forgiven, and you are my child. No one can be made right through religious ceremonies, through rituals, or through works, or even through the law of Moses, Paul says. The law is unable to justify anyone. It only brings condemnation. Paul gave this early sermon before he wrote the book of Galatians. Most scholars believe he wrote the book of Galatians just a few months later, probably immediately after the council in Acts chapter 15. But on the same theme, hear what he says in Galatians about the law, Galatians 2. He says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And then in chapter three, he says clearly, no one, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Paul, in a very simple statement in Acts chapter 13, verse 39, is summarizing a huge principle that would go on to define his letters to the churches in the New Testament. And it would come to shape the way he ministered the gospel around the Roman Empire. And that is that we are justified through Jesus and his righteousness, not justified through our own self-righteousness or through any works righteousness of any system, including the Mosaic law. As we think about this point, we may distance it from ourselves and say, well, we're not Jewish and we don't struggle with the Mosaic code. We're not in a synagogue this morning, but I'm here to tell you, it is our natural tendency to replace the gospel of grace with a gospel of works. And it is our natural sort of default mode to become legalists and to say, well, I know God says forgiveness is available and that I can be made right with him through the justification of Christ, but I don't feel it. I feel it more when I'm strict with myself and I require certain standards and I make sure that I perform and do certain things that to me seem to be really the marks of a good Christian. And very subtly, we can allow the disciplines of the Christian life to become the demands of what it is to be right with God. And that's legalism. That's not honoring the gospel of Christ at all. Steve Brown, who is a preacher from Florida, he also has a radio program. He's actually not been a pastor in many years because he hosts his own ministry, and that has been a radio ministry that's now a podcast ministry and so on. But Brown gives the analogy of the law versus grace and says it's like this. Imagine taking your dog to the taxidermist versus taking him to the veterinarian. If you take him to the taxidermist, you're still going to get your dog back, but he's going to be dead and lifeless. He's going to be frozen in time, unable to please you. But if you take your dog to the veterinarian, at least while he's still living, the veterinarian will return your dog to you with treatment or whatever is necessary so that your dog will be alive and you'll be able to enjoy your dog and spending time with him and your dog will enjoy you. And he says essentially that's the difference between legalism and grace. And when we take 
a works righteousness or a self-righteousness, we're basically serving a taxidermist. And we have deadness to show for it. But when we abide in the forgiveness and justification that we've been offered in the gospel, it's like visiting the vet. There are times we're mixed up, we're confused, and even hurt. But there's healing in this gospel message. Well, as we think about this gospel that we proclaim, we also have a bit of bad news. The good news is that we have forgiveness and we have justification. But Paul also here tells of bad news by referring us to the prophet Habakkuk. If you look at beginning of verse number 40, he says, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, and wander and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. What is he referring to here? Well, Paul is using a warning from the days of Habakkuk when the prophet had foretold God's people something unbelievable was gonna happen. And that unbelievable thing was that he was going to raise up the Chaldeans, the evil Chaldeans who were Gentiles, to punish Judah for their sins of disobedience. And now Paul was taking this same principle, this same passage from the prophet and saying, God was going to raise up Gentiles to put Israel to shame. He was going to raise up Gentiles who would believe the gospel while the Jewish audience would reject it. And may that be a warning that we would receive the gospel when we hear it and not lean on our own understanding. Now, there's no doubt this message did not go down well in the synagogue with the leaders. Remember verse 15, those who had said, hey, here's Paul and here's Barnabas. Let's have them stand and give us a message today. In fact, we find toward the end of this chapter that those same leaders are angry, they're bitter, they're jealous, and they want to run them out of town on a rail. But there are also people who respond to the message gladly, he says to us. As I conclude the first point that Christians must proclaim the good news, I want to challenge us to keep the message as simple as it is here. Did you hear me when I said that verse 38 and 39 are essentially a kernel of what became the letter to the Galatians? Yet they communicate the same truth in two sentences, essentially, that we are forgiven in Christ and we've been made right in Christ and there's no other way to be made right. As we have the opportunity to proclaim Jesus, I think one of the hindrances that we bring to witnessing is we doubt ourselves and say, But what if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? What if they want me to explain the doctrine of justification and go through the whole thing starting with Martin Luther? I mean, I don't know how to do that. What if they take me to a passage in the Bible that I've probably only read a couple times in my life and I don't remember? And we have all kinds of things. And yet, all we have to do is share and admit, I don't know, but I'll find out when someone challenges us or they ask a question that may be too hard. More often than not, those questions that intimidate us are actually distractions from the gospel. And what we need to do is point them back to the simple fact that they are sinners who need forgiveness and can be made right with God through the justification of Jesus Christ. It's that simple, and yet we make it that hard. One other caution that I would say is those who are committed to conservative, even reformed theology, tend to want to convert people to 
our theology before we convert them to the gospel. Now, you might think, now, what, wait a second, how can you divide that? Now, obviously, I would say Reformed theology supports a right understanding of the gospel. But what I'm saying is we want to bring sinners to a point of belief, repenting of their sin and understanding the pardon that they have in Christ before they understand the five points of Calvinism or before they understand the finer points of eschatology and all the things that we may take great satisfaction in knowing and that we can learn and that we should disciple and teach, but those are not the front door to the house as it were. So let's be bold in our witness. Let's not stumble over ourselves, but instead let's trust in Christ. And as we do that, it leads to my second primary point this morning. My second point is that the good news provokes two responses. The good news provokes two responses. It did in Paul's day and it does in our day as well. And what are those responses? The first is that Christians will accept the grace of God. Look at verse number 42. He says here, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. As Paul and Barnabas came and they declared forgiveness and justification, which is the gospel, people responded with belief. They accepted the message that Paul had delivered and they even accepted it eagerly, inviting them to come back and teach them more. Now, lest you think Paul was only a preacher in the synagogue, there's no question that in the time between their first sermon and their second sermon, Paul and Barnabas spent time in people's homes instructing them in the scriptures, answering their questions, making sure that they understood, and helping others also who may not have been in the synagogue on that day. And word was spreading rapidly. It says here that the people not only invited them, but they followed them. This is another way of saying that they believed what Paul and Barnabas were teaching. Paul would say this elsewhere in his epistles. He would say, follow me as I follow Christ. The idea being that the early believers were following Paul and Barnabas because they were being taught about the things of Christ. And they were being taught not merely in sermons, but he says here as they talked with them, and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So there was a back and forth in this conversation about the gospel, and the center of it all was let's persevere in grace. Let's emphasize grace and make much of grace. This is in contrast to the law where they were called to perform and called to keep the, the rituals and the rites, but in grace they were called to a relationship and to persevere in Jesus. The believers were to persevere in their salvation through faith alone, as opposed to the works of the law, which did not lead to salvation. Again, in Galatians chapter one, Paul said this. He said, I'm astonished that some of you so quickly deserted the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul warned the Galatians to continue in the things that he had taught them, which was the simplicity of the gospel. And he warned them because there were those who were always trying to undermine it and saying, yes, but. But, the, 
but you need to hear this. There's one more thing, or there's just a few more things. And Paul reminds over and over again, no, remember those discussions that we had in your homes. Continue in the grace of God. The people had asked Paul to continue in the grace of God. And in his later letters, such as Galatians, he invites them to continue in the grace of God as well. While there are those who would give glory to God by believing the gospel message, there were also those who would reject the message. So I said in my point, there are two responses. One is belief, the other is unbelief. We see in this same passage that there are non-Christians who are rejecting the grace of God. Look at verse number 44. It says, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. The Jewish leaders who had once welcomed Paul and Barnabas into the synagogue were now trying to drive them out, not only of the synagogue, but drive them out of the city and remove their influence because they were bothered by what they were teaching. Now, some have taken this jealousy here to refer to an envy of crowds, that they were upset because Paul and Barnabas, these strangers from another town, just rocked in and gathered a massive crowd, and the Jews could not do that, even though they were gathering faithfully every Sabbath. That's not the jealousy that's being referred to here. The jealousy here is that Paul was challenging the Jews and saying, there's salvation to the Gentiles. And that salvation doesn't go through your temple and your synagogue. It goes through Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all the rituals of the temple and who has completed all the laws that are taught in the synagogue. They were jealous because Paul was cutting them out of the picture, as it were. He was eliminating their slice of the pie and saying all people needed to do was believe Jesus. That's why they began to contradict him and say, whoa, 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 wait a second. We have the tradition. We have time. We have all these things that point to us. And Paul was saying, that is not important. When they're contradicting his teaching didn't work, they just merely got personal and it says they heaped abuse on him. This heaping abuse meant that they were not only opposing his message, they were opposing him as a man. They were saying, if you doubt what we say about Paul's teaching, then let us tell you what a lousy person he is. And they tried to vilify him as an individual to marginalize his message. And yet none of that would ultimately work. This is why Paul responded to them and Barnabas did the way they did in verse number 46. When they answered these interlocutors this way, he said, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul made it a point to take the gospel to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. He would follow this pattern in other cities as he arrived there. But after the Jews rejected the message and opposed him, Paul quickly moved to the more receptive Gentiles, and the Gentiles received the light of Christ and believed him for their salvation. 
That's why he quotes Isaiah 49 here to say that that was pointing to Christ and that simple belief in Jesus is what makes a person right with God rather than bending to the rituals of the synagogue. As we proclaim the good news, it brings two responses, one of belief and one of unbelief. And this is just as God designed it in verse number 48. He says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. There are many controversies out there surrounding the doctrines of grace or the doctrines of election or tulip or Calvinism or whatever you want to call a high view of the sovereignty of God and a realistic view of the depravity or sinfulness of people. But Paul or Luke, as he's recording the events of Paul's early ministry, were saying the Gentiles heard and believed just as God had foreordained for them to do. What's encouraging about this passage is that it doesn't make some of the dichotomies that we make that say, well, if you believe in election, then you don't believe in evangelism. No, you have a context of a person doing evangelism. Paul has come to proclaim the good news of forgiveness and justification. And people believe the good news because the gospel produced the results God had designed for it to produce. I've been in many discussions over the years about the doctrine of election and not to try to win debates and sort of go, gotcha, or what do you say to that? But this is a favorite verse to go to that say we can put these two things together, that we should have a heart of evangelism and trust the sovereignty of God because God is working. And what is their response? It wasn't one of, boy, I'm glad we're chosen and I'm sorry those people aren't. No, it says they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. They gave joy and glory to God because all they could see was God's grace over their salvation. It wasn't about them at all. It was all about him. So as Christians, we must proclaim the good news and we must recognize that the good news produces two responses according to the sovereign will of God. And that leads to my last point, and that is that Christians must propel the good news forward. Christians must propel the good news forward. In spite of the opposition of the Jews and the reception of the Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas were encouraged to see the word of the Lord continue to spread. Look at verse number 39. It says, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And then look at the last verse, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The good news was continuing to spread no matter how people reacted to it. Some certainly with belief, others with unbelief, but the word of God was prevailing. And as the messengers sent this out, they were encouraged, even though there was opposition. John Piper says this about our call to take the gospel. He says, God has ordained that salvation come to the nations through sent messengers whose obedient preaching of the gospel brings salvation to the nations. Did you catch that? That Piper says, God has ordained that salvation come to the nations. In other words, he has decreed it, just as it said in verse number 30, 48, but he's decreed it through the obedient preaching of Christians like us. As we go, we sometimes have excuses and we fumble and we feel feeble as we open our mouths to share Jesus. 
But we can be confident as we're sharing the gospel of Christ and pointing people to his word that there will be a response. And that response includes more people accepting the gospel and telling others also. What an incredible thing that the gospel didn't depend on Paul and Barnabas alone, but it grew roots in the church at Antioch of Pisidian, just as it had had roots at Antioch of Syria and in Jerusalem. And the gospel would go forward, continuing to multiply joy and the work of the Holy Spirit. But there would still be opposition, and that's what we see in verse 50 and 51. And that is these Jewish leaders were inciting fear and trying to drive people out and send them away. They stirred up persecution, it says, against Paul and Barnabas, expelling them from their region. So the brothers shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. There's a lot more that could be said here. But what I want you to see is that as you share the gospel, expect opposition. Too many times we expect smooth sailing and thinking, well, if I just share the gospel, people will thank me. And they'll say, wow, I'm so glad you've come to tell me this, that I'm a sinner, that I'm an awful person, that I need forgiveness, and that I'm not right with God, and that I need to be made right with God through Jesus. Good job. Thank you. And here's some money for your trouble. That does not happen, obviously. But why do we think that? Why do we talk ourselves into, I don't want to share my faith because what if they reject me? Well, if they reject you, you're on good ground because the apostles were rejected. Jesus, before them, was rejected. And Jesus even said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution and opposition are just part and parcel of sharing the gospel. Too often we're focused on results, and maybe that's because of our American culture, that we want to see things get done. We want the top ROI, return on investment. So we're going to send missionaries where there is the greatest response. We're going to go witness in the neighborhood where the most people seem to have open doors to our message. And yet that's not how the New Testament carried the gospel forward. The New Testament propelled the gospel forward through believers who took it everywhere, even at the cost of their lives. So as we share the gospel this week, I want to challenge you. Don't share the gospel and measure it based on how you think the person may respond. Share the gospel because it's God's message to sinful people like you and the person God has called you to share it with. And watch God do incredible things. As I conclude, I want you to consider that God advances the good news through faithful Christians. And yet so many times we as Christians get distracted and try to advance so many other things. Facebook, Twitter, whatever other social media platform you like are filled with Christians who are advancing niche beliefs and specific causes that though interesting may not be as tied to the gospel as they think. And I'm not going to give specific examples because there are too many to choose from. The point is, our message is simply that we proclaim the forgiveness of Christ and justification through him. And as we share that message, God will be faithful to draw believers to himself, just as he was ordained, while others reject it. 
The question is, will we proclaim it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word this morning, there is much in this passage that's convicting. We can look at the passage and discount it and say that was a different era. Those were apostles that you're talking about. Those were brothers who were set apart by Antioch. They were missionaries. I'm no missionary. I'm no apostle. How could I be held to this? And yet, God, the truth is you've called all Christians, no matter their position or responsibility in your kingdom, you've called all Christians to declare the good news of the gospel of Jesus. So God, I pray that we would be the kind of believers who proclaim the forgiveness of sins and justification before God, and that we would be crystal clear on these truths, that we would not be distracted by other things that, though interesting, can lead away from the gospel. But God, we pray that we would point people squarely to Jesus. And as we do that, we ask that you would grant repentance and faith to those whom you have chosen. God, we pray that for members of our own families that don't believe the gospel. We ask that you would convert them. God, we also pray that for our friends and for those in our community, that you would use our feeble voices, our doubtful minds, our wavering tongues, and our shaking hands to tell people about Jesus wherever you give us the opportunity. And God, we pray that you would allow us or strengthen us to trust you for the results. Forgive us for looking for ROI and gospel work, and instead help us to look for the glory of God and gospel work. And as we do that, we pray that you would see fit to grow our church, which is your church, for the sake of your gospel and kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.